Welcome to episode two of the podcast method. I'm Dan Benjamin. Man, you guys uh, really surprised me because I thought this was just going to be a fun little show, maybe help a few people along the way. And uh, it it's become really popular and I've gotten so much feedback about it. And it like went to the top of the charts in iTunes and some crazy things like that. Well, I owe all of that to you guys. Apparently, you have been subscribing to it and rating it and Man, uh, I'm like super excited to do this show and I feel tons of pressure now because so many people are talking about it. I mean, I love that, but man, I've got to deliver, right? I've got to make sure this show is really awesome. Um, The whole point of this show is hopefully to get people as excited as I am about podcasting and help you guys not make the same mistakes that I've made, uh, many times expensive mistakes that I've made. Uh, and and hopefully have some fun and learn along the way. Like I said in the first episode, and, and I've talked about before, I think podcasting is the most fun, exciting, new thing that we have. And of course, it's not new. It's been around for a long time. I've been doing this now full time for almost six years and uh, and podcasting for a few years before that, since about 2006. It's not new, but it feels new. And that's what makes it so much fun. And there is does not have to be a, a huge barrier of entry for people to start podcasting, to start making great shows. And that's that's what I hope to do with this show. So thanks so much to everybody who has taken the time to go to iTunes and rate it, uh, or even more than that, write a review. Anybody who's done that, thank you. And if you want to help the show, if you like the show, if you want to help, do that. Go to iTunes and uh, and and rate the show there. And that actually leads me into a really good discussion point, uh, something that I wanted to talk about uh, for a while, and that is how iTunes works. Uh, People are always surprised when they come out with a new show and, you know, they submit it to iTunes, which is a straightforward process. You make an RSS feed that's, you know, iTunes compatible, podcast compatible. Then you submit the show to iTunes following their instructions, just Google that. And you know what? Your show will show up there. Sometimes it'll hit new and noteworthy. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes it'll be in top charts, top podcasts, things like that. This show, the one you're listening to right now, actually last episode, was like number three, and I think now it's number five in new and noteworthy across all of iTunes, across all podcasts in iTunes. That's crazy. And it's the number one top podcast in the technology podcast section. Also crazy. Well, that's because, uh, and how does that work? It seems mysterious iTunes doesn't actually explain how this works. Uh, the, the the people there aren't completely, um, you know, they, there isn't like a how-to. And I think that's on purpose. I think they want shows to naturally show up there. What I've been able to discern over the years of doing this is when a new show comes out and lots of people subscribe to it and rate it, those are the things that, that push it up in the charts. That seems obvious, right? Uh, but... It's, it's, it's hard for uh, an older show to kind of rise up in the charts unless it has new ratings coming in and new reviews coming in. So that's why frequently on our shows, I'll say, hey, if you like the show, please go to iTunes and rate it. That's what keeps it fresh. That's what keeps it showing up. And why iTunes? A lot of people are saying, I don't use iTunes. I use, you know, I use Instacast, Overcast, Downcast, Pocketcast. I use this the, these other apps. Well, those... In, and I don't want to say those specifically, but many, uh, if not all in some way, uh, many podcast apps do look at iTunes and pull information in one way or another from iTunes 
for their own recommendations, for their own indexes. Uh, so iTunes is kind of the grandparent of many different podcast apps that are around and where they pull their information from. Uh, apps like Marco's Overcast also uses Twitter and does some other creative things to, to pull data in. So I think that, that the future isn't just to rely on iTunes for sure and maybe even the present but iTunes is still the way that most people will wind up finding new shows. People don't really go to 5x5.tv as much as they used to since the uh, the explosion of really, really great iOS and Android podcast apps. iTunes is still important. The website is still important, but it's nowhere near as important as uh, as it used to be. But still, going in and like rating your favorite shows, if there's a show that you love and you're like, man, why don't people listen to this show that I love? Go in and, and rate the show. Give it four or five stars, whatever you think it deserves, and put a review in. That really, really helps uh, people find the shows that you like. I'm not saying just this show, any show that you like. Go in and take take two minutes to rate it. Makes a big difference. Okay, so that was one topic. But I do want to jump in. I've gotten so many really, really great questions that people are asking me on Twitter, which that is such a great way to get feedback about a show that you're doing. You don't have to make a separate Twitter account for each show that you do if you do more than one. It doesn't hurt to go and register that. It doesn't hurt to mention it and list it. But just keep in mind, like, that's extra work for you. It's an extra Twitter account you've got to maintain. And if people are tweeting to that account, you've got to make sure that you're tweeting back to them from that account. Otherwise, what's the point of it? So, yeah, make an account, but uh, but make sure you stay on top of it. Uh, now, this is the best way to, for, to ask me questions about this show is ask me. I'm at Dan Benjamin on Twitter. And uh, when you ask me a question, put the hashtag podcast method, because right now on my uh, on my computer in front of me as I'm recording this, I'm looking at a list of all of the podcast method uh, hashtags in, in the search. So this is how I'm going to try and jump in and, and answer questions. And what I do is I go in and I make a list of them and I see, uh, oh, people generally are kind of asking this type of question. So that's how I'm, I'm going to try and jump in. And in some cases, I'll call out individual ones and uh, and to see if I can answer them specifically. Uh, so one question that I've heard a lot, a lot of people have asked this, is what is the best way for, I, you know, I don't want to invest a lot of money in a mixer and Skype machines and all the stuff, the fancy stuff. What's the best way for me to record a show with two or three other people in different locations? Well, there are two basic ways that you can do this. Uh, the first way to do it is you do something like a Skype uh, conference call and you record that Skype conference call. That is sort of the easiest, lowest budget way for one person to record everything. But the problem with that is your, your results are not going to be that great. You're going to get everybody on basically one track and everybody's volume at their mic recording levels Everything is going to be different. You've got one person who's talking on an iPhone headset. You've got another person who's in front of a really good condenser mic. You've got somebody else who's, you know, in his backyard with his neighbor's dog barking. You want to be able to EQ and compress, and we'll talk about compression later, and basically make all those tracks sound good and deal with silence and other things like that. In order to do that, you need each of those people on their own track, whether you're editing in GarageBand or Pro Tools or Logic or Audition, it doesn't matter. You want them each on their own track, or at least as many tracks as possible. So just recording a Skype conference call is not really the best way to do it. You're never going to get great. You will never get great results with that. 
But there's another way you can do it that doesn't actually cost any more money. It might cost you a little more in time, but it won't necessarily cost you much money. And that is what's called the double ender. This uh, is a term that comes from old days of radio uh, recording where you would end. And I shouldn't even say old days. This is still how they do it. Let's say that you are in New York City and you want to interview somebody who's in San Francisco and you are doing a, a big show on NPR. You would go into your local studio in New York City and your guest would go into an affiliate station over in San Francisco. They would sit down at a microphone. You're sitting at a microphone. You're in two different locations. They connect you guys typically with a phone line or an ISDN line or if you want to nowadays, they might even be using Skype. You'll talk to the other person You'll hear them and they'll hear you over Skype, but they're recording their end and you're recording your end. And then the audio engineer will mix those two tracks together, one recorded in with great clarity where you are, the other one with great quality and clarity where the other person is. They'll mix those two things together, double ends. So that's the technique that many, many podcasters are using today. What that means is you and each one of your guests or co-hosts would be responsible for recording their side of the conversation. How do you do this? Well, if you're lucky enough to be using a Mac, uh, all Macs within, I don't know how many years, have come with QuickTime. So QuickTime is is a simple app that allows you to do things like play pretty much any kind of audio or video file. But it also lets you record. So you can launch QuickTime and do new uh, audio recording and just hit record And you will get a very high quality recording of your local uh, microphone, the microphone that you're sitting in front of. Of course, it won't record anybody else, but it will record your end. So you could use a Skype conference call to connect you and however many other guests and co-hosts you have so that you can all hear each other. And each of you is then in turn recording their own audio. Now, you don't have to use QuickTime to do it. You can use Audio Hijack Pro. You can use tons of other, pretty much anything that will allow you to record from that microphone as an input, you're set. Then when they're done, you Dropbox those files up or you FTP them or you email them or put them somewhere that the main person who's going to be compiling all these things together, they can grab it, import those into their audio editing software of choice, each one on its own track, balance them out, EQ them, compress them, make them sound amazing. And, uh, and, but there's still a couple more challenges. Uh, The main one now is going to be something called audio drift. This is kind of a complicated uh, topic, but simply know this. Every single computer, even computers that are essentially identical off the assembly line, have a slightly different clock speed. They're going to run just a tiny little bit different. That difference increases even more when there are different kinds of machines, a MacBook versus an iMac versus a Mac Pro versus a, a, a machine running Windows. They're going to record. So even though... You're all talking at the same speed and rate. What is recorded by one machine is going to be a little bit off time-wise than what's recorded by another machine, and that difference increases over time. So if you're recording a show that goes into the 60, 90, 120-minute time uh, range, those audio tracks are going to get out of sync. And even though each person is individually on each track, they're going to still get a bit out of sync. Uh, If you took those two completely different computers and put them directly in front of you with a microphone recorded and you talked into that microphone for two hours, even your own track would get out of sync on one machine with the other. That's just the nature of the beast. So you're going to have to account for that. That means you're going to have to listen to that whole show that you've recorded. Not a bad idea anyway. 
you're going to have to listen to that whole show that you've recorded and I'd make those minor adjustments. You might have to cut five seconds here, add five seconds there to make sure that these tracks are all lined up. Well, there's another trick that you can use that'll help this process. And this is actually another way that you can record, uh, like if you're doing an interview type show where it's just you and one other co-host or one guest, you can use software. It's called Call Recorder and it's by Ecamm. Uh, and by the way, I'm putting that into the show notes. Show notes are going to be at 5x5.tv slash podcast method slash two. That's where you go to see the, the links for this show. Uh, and if you're using a nice podcast uh, app, they'll show up there too. And uh, this software uh, is called by Ecamm Call Recorder. And that lets you record a Skype conversation. And it's smart enough that if you have like you and another person on the call, it'll split that into two separate audio tracks. So you kind of have what you need there. If you do a conference call with more, it gets a little more complicated, but you're not going to be using oh, Audio Hijack Pro also lets you do this. Lots of software that'll, that exists out there that allow you to capture audio from a Skype call as it's being recorded is really great. Uh, use that. And what you're doing is you're essentially, not only are you making a nice backup of the call as it's happening, because you've got a separate recording in case something terrible happens, uh, but you also have a reference. You have an audio reference. So you can hear the call as it actually happened. And that's going to be tremendously helpful for you later to uh, account for that audio drift when you've recorded that conversation that, uh, that, that got a little bit out of sync over time. You're going to not only be able to see the waveform, uh, when you have it in your audio editing software from that uh, reference call, but you're also going to be able to unmute that track, line up uh, the, the the other tracks that you have, and make sure everything stays in sync. Just stay on top of that, and uh, and you should be fine. A related question that I've been asked a lot is, uh, what if we're all in the same room? How do we record it? Not different places. No Skype involved. We've got three people sitting here all together in the same room. How do we record that conversation? You would think that would be a more straightforward answer, but it's actually a little bit more difficult. Uh, You could each have your own microphone plugged into your own computer and record it like that. You could, uh, that would be the the way to spend the least amount of money. Uh, The next step would be you could use one of those microphones that has uh, what's called an omnidirectional pattern. So that uh, essentially you put it in the middle of the table, you turn it on, and everybody sort of talks toward it, and it records them all. But I don't like that because then everybody winds up on the same microphone track. Not so cool. Harder to edit because the EQ levels of the, co- the, of the host of the show, who is a woman with a mid-range voice, are going to be very different than the way you're going to EQ uh, the guy who has this deep baritone voice. It's going to be very different, but if they're on the same track, uh, you don't have much choice there. You're going to have to just do the best you can. Not good. You want everybody on their own track when you edit. So really what it comes down to uh, is is getting a mixer and a few microphones. We've talked about mixers uh, on podcastmethod.co, uh, and there's a handful of mixers that I recommend. But basically what a mixer allows you to do is have multiple microphones connected or multiple audio sources connected at one time. That will plug into your computer and record in multiple tracks. And that's, that's, basically, that's basically it. You, you can all be in the same room, and depending on the kind of mixer that you get, uh, you're going to be able to have a number of, uh, of microphones connected all at once and recording all at once. You'll have to deal with things like what's called audio leakage uh, or audio bleed, 
which is where uh, the things that you're saying into your microphone will be picked up by the other microphones in the room and recorded on their track. The best way to get around that from happening is you will talk uh, kind of directly and uh, not quietly, but carefully into your own microphone. You can also put acoustic paneling up on the walls. You can make sure the people are as far away as possible. You can make sure the gain isn't too high, but just high enough. Lots of little things. It will take experimentation. Uh, but I put some links to mixers in the show notes. I really like the Mackie line of mixers. Um, they are Firewire type mixers. And the reason that that's important and the reason that I recommend a Firewire or nowadays a Thunderbolt even uh, mixer over a USB mixer is because at most USB mixers will give you stereo. That means two tracks. But if you're recording more than two, three, four, five people, two tracks isn't exactly what you want. Um, a, uh, a Firewire or Thunderbolt mixer, like the line of Mackie mixers, which I love, those will give you discrete tracks for pretty much every single one of the inputs on the board. So that means every single person talking into their own mic is recorded as a separate track, which allows you to then get in and EQ them separately, adjust their volume separately, account for background noise separately. And as if and when you expand to a, to a bigger setup and you have remote guests, you can do what we do. And I know a lot of other folks do this too nowadays. Uh, you get a separate machine running Skype for each of those people, connect them into that mixer just as if they were their own microphone. Then getting ahead of where I want to go with the scope of this show. But keep in mind, a mixer is a great investment. And, and I, I can't imagine you'd ever regret getting a mixer. Uh, they're just wonderful things to have. And before I jump into doing some specific questions, I wanted to talk about one more topic, and that is uh, editing. There's been a lot of conversation about uh, should you do editing? Should you edit your shows? And in the past, I've said, yes, you should edit your shows. But I wanted to get into a little bit more detail about what I mean when I talk about editing a show. Because people who listen to our shows live know that uh, we don't do a whole lot of editing for content. And so there, there's sort of, in my mind, there's kind of, there's two kinds of editing. There's editing for content and there's editing for problems or for mistakes. So for example, uh, we, whenever I uh, talk to a remote host, someone who's in uh, another location, let's say back to work, Merlin's in San Francisco. When we record that show, I'm standing here in our Austin office and Merlin is in his, uh, his little office uh, way up in San Francisco. And he's, He's recording his end. We don't often need to use it, but he records it as a good habit for a backup in case something happens. And I'm recording everything here through our mixers and preamps and things like that. And, uh, and we're also streaming the show live. So I have uh, – I stream – by the way, we stream live to a remote IceCast server. And we use the software – Rogue Amoebas makes software called NiceCast that allows us to capture an audio input – and stream it out to our remote server so that when you go to 5x5.tv slash live or 5x5.fm, it is connecting to our remote server, which we're streaming up to that. You don't connect to like our own office to try and, and listen. Anyway, that's, that's a little bit outside the scope of what I wanted to talk about. But uh, uh, the reason I mention it is Rogue Amoeba's NiceCast also allows you to not only stream, but to record. So if you get that software, you can record just as if you were using Audio Hijack Pro or using Ecamm Call Recorder. It's going to give you just one track, but it works wonderfully as a backup recorder. Just wanted to mention that. Uh, so as far as recording and editing, if you listen to our shows live, you'll know that the only time uh, that, that we usually want to edit for, for, uh, for anything is 
if Merlin and I, for example, have a, a bad Skype connection that day and his call drops or he, he or I sound a little bit like a robot, which Skype is, uh, is you know, not, not un, uncommon for Skype to do that, we will edit those things out. If we, you know, if the call drops or if there's some other problem, we'll edit it out. If I bump the microphone by mistake, I want to edit that out uh, because your listeners don't need to hear that kind of stuff. If I'm recording with Andy and uh, some lady on a plane gave him a terrible cough and he winds up coughing on the show, I'll edit it out. Well, how do I edit that out? As I'm recording, uh, and we use Logic uh, Pro 10 here to record, I will, I will do what's called dropping a marker. Uh, there is a little plus button at the top of the tracks where you hit that and it just puts in a little marker. There's the same way to do that in Pro Tools. I'm pretty sure you can do it in GarageBand. You know what you can also do? You can put a clock on uh, on your desk or you can look at the screen while you're recording and you can make a note of the time that it happened during the recording with a pen and a, and a piece of paper and write down, oh, the thing said... Uh, 12 minutes in, and uh, that's where we spilled the coffee all over the desk and had to clean it up. You know, you don't want to leave that in for your listeners. But that's not editing for content. That's editing out mistakes. That's editing out problems. Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm a little bit more hesitant to recommend that you edit out, for, that you edit content. And I'll tell you why. For many people who aren't streaming or recording their shows or broadcasting them live in some way or other, uh, you, be, you can rely on editing as a crutch. And the reason why we don't edit very much is because we stream live. For every show that I do, with the exception of this one, uh, I'm, I'm streaming them out live. And I don't like to edit for content. I like to think of it as a live program. And what you hear when you're listening to it, with the exception of pulling out those, those problems, technical problems, is you're hearing this live show. If I was going to get up on stage and act in a play, right, or deliver a monologue or a speech, or if I was going to drive down to the local uh, TV station for, you know, Good, Mor uh, Good Morning America or, you know, Today Show and be on live, you don't get to do it over. And what that does is that adds a little bit of excitement, a little bit of nervousness almost, a little bit of reality to it. You know you can't do it again. Even if there's only one person listening or five people listening, sometimes we get 20, 30, 50 people. Sometimes we get a couple thousand, a few thousand people, depending on the show and what we're talking about. When you know that you've got dozens, hundreds, thousands of people listening, you've got to get it right. And that puts a little bit of pressure on you. And the reason why you don't hear people who do this for a living, like me, saying, um, uh, yeah, or long, awkward pauses it's because we know people are listening. We know people can hear what we're saying when we're saying it. And that adds a little bit of an edge and it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you paying attention. It keeps you thinking ahead. You can't sit there and, ah, well, we'll just edit out. That whole part was boring. I'll edit that one out, marker. And yeah, you know what? That conversation went on for 10 minutes instead of five. That was stupid. I'll, I'll, I'll cut that in half and... That, you know what, where we talked about this, that should really have been at the beginning of the show, so we'll move it. Well, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. You want to make the best show that you can possibly make. So editing can be an important way to craft a really amazing show. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying don't edit. I'm saying, yes, edit when you need to. But if you, if you go into it thinking, I can't edit this, this is what it is, 
it will keep you on your toes and make you do an even better job at focusing, at thinking, at being in the moment, at thinking a little bit ahead, at, uh, and it will help you eliminate bad habits, uh, like thinking, ah, this doesn't have to be great. We'll take it out later. No, it, make it as great as you can possibly make it the first time. Get it right the first time. And then connected to this, my last bit of advice, always, always, always listen to your shows after you record them. Listen to them. Go back and listen to them. I know that's tough if you're doing three shows a day like I, I, I am and sometimes and, and used to all the time. That's kind of tough to do. And I'm not saying that I listen to every single one of the shows that, uh, that I record, but I try to. I want to. And I listen to most of them because that's the only way that you can improve. It's the only way that you can get better is if you listen back to your – and if you find you don't want to listen to your own show, you got to work harder. A lot harder because you should want to hear your own show. You should want to say, what did I do wrong here? What could we do better? I remember reading that uh, David Letterman, every night after they do the show, they go back and they watch it as, a, as a, the, the writing team watches the whole show. And they saw that that bit was terrible. How could we make it better? Oh, that one was really good. Let's do more of that. that. That process, that dedication, if you're doing one show a week and it's a 90-minute show, after you edit it, take a break. Wait for a few days and go back and then listen again. And you'll catch tons of little bad habits that you might have with things that you say, those, those uh, you know, little habits or phrases that you repeat too much or things like that that you can improve on. You can listen to the show and find, are you enjoying the show? Are you laughing along with the show? Are you feeling what your hope, uh, the, the audience will feel? That's such a wonderful way to learn more about your own craft and perfect your own craft and get better. You know, if you, if, you're, if you or your guests or your co-hosts don't sound good, make a note. Oh, you know what? I sounded like I was off mic there. I bet I could be, I bet I could do that better. Or, oh, you know what? I could have EQ'd um, my guest voice better. You know, she, she has a, a different, different range than uh, this other guest. And I use the same EQ on both of them. I should, I should change that. Little things like that you can only get from listening back to the show that you've recorded. I have a special segment that I've uh, set up for you guys. But before we get to that, I did want to jump in and answer some specific questions on Twitter. Uh, so here, uh, here we go. Let's just jump in. This one was just asked really recently. And again, if you want to ask me questions, uh, please do. I'm at Dan Benjamin on Twitter. Make sure that you add the hashtag podcast method uh, or else I, I won't be able to see it when I prepare the, the list for the show. So here's somebody whose name is Exploring Chiro. And uh, they ask, what's a reasonable goal for reaching monetization? How many downloads do advertisers look for? That is a wonderful, wonderful question that we get asked a lot. Uh, how many downloads do you need? Uh, I, I will say that there is no reason that a show that has 100 downloads couldn't find a sponsorship somewhere. Don't think that you are not going to be interesting if your show is great and your audience is engaged. You're going to have an uphill climb until you get thousands of downloads. And when I say thousands, a, a year ago, if you'd asked me, I would have said eh, 20,000 before you're real interesting to a sponsor. It's actually more like 40,000 now before sponsors are going to actively want to hear your, you know, be, be on your show and before they'll act, actually start hearing it and knowing about it. But that doesn't mean that you with 1,000 to 2,000 downloads a show can't go and talk to sponsors or potential sponsors. Absolutely, you should. Absolutely. You should go out there and say, hey, you know what? We get 1,500 downloads a week. Here's our audience. 
here's why our audience is special. And here's why you should sponsor our show, because we have access to an audience that's not like all these other shows out there. And yeah, it's 1,500 people, not 15,000, not 150,000. But you know what? You should sponsor our show because this audience is amazing. Uh, realistically, I think, I think you should push harder when you start getting closer to about 10,000 downloads. We have shows on 5 by 5 that don't get 10,000 downloads, plenty of them. Uh, and sponsors are interested in them, but we can also leverage the other shows that don't get 10,000 downloads and, and put them together and say, well, these three or four shows, we'll kind of sell them as a package because together they amount to 20, 30, 40,000 downloads. So you'll be spread across these shows that are similar. That helps those smaller shows get sponsorships because they're being sold as part of a, a package deal. Uh, bigger shows... Uh, the, the biggest shows, sponsors often reach out to us and say, we would love to sponsor that show. But don't be fooled. There's a lot of work involved in getting sponsors. Um, it's, a, it's a full-time job if you've got a handful of shows to sell for. Uh, and it's a lot of work and it's, it's a slow, detailed, time-consuming process. Uh, but you can do it. Don't be discouraged. Um, Brett Young says, if I did a jazz podcast where I ended up playing a number of songs, can I just do this or are rights needed? Um, that is a really tricky question. You're going to have to uh, look up fair use, and I have a link to fair use in, uh, in the show notes. Again, pod, uh, 5by5.tv slash podcast method slash two. Fair use is tricky. Uh, basically, what that says is that you are, um, you're using a clip of something that's copyrighted, essentially, uh, but you're allowed to use it because you're doing something valuable around it. You're providing commentary or analysis or something like that. I think it would be highly unlikely that you could, re, you could play an entire song or a, a clip of the whole song or even an extended clip of a song uh, in your podcast and then talk about it. I think that's kind of really pushing the limits of what fair use would be here. And I, me personally, I wouldn't want to take that risk. Um, you could probably play a short clip of it to, to you know, enhance the conversation that you're having around it, enhance the analysis that you're having around it. And I know that it's tempting to want to just include copyrighted material like that in your own show. But for me, I don't even want to get into that. I don't want to worry about it. I don't want to infringe anybody's copyright. So I just don't do that. I just typically won't do that. Or if I do, it's for just a couple quick seconds and I'll make sure that it's attributed and uh, and linked and everything properly in case there is a problem. But it's it's tempting to want to do that. Uh, what's better though, and because you can do things like create your own show notes is, yeah, it's nice to play a clip, but you know what? You can link to those. You can link to them in iTunes or on Spotify or wherever someone can go to hear that music and, uh, and send them there. And yeah, it's not as good, but you know what? Radio stations, when they do things like that, when they play music, they've got licensing agreements in place that allow them to do that, that, uh, that cost them a lot of money. And, uh, and if you're not uh, willing to pay or interested in paying or not able to pay that kind of money, you're probably going to have to, to steer clear of doing that. Christoph Prochaska, sorry, Christoph, if I'm saying that name wrong, uh, asks, should I start a podcast if I can't stand listening to my own voice? Others tell me it's nice, though. Well, I know exactly what Christoph is talking about. And the, uh, in a priv- previous episode, in, in episode number one, I think I talked about uh, how people are often Uh, find it jarring when they first hear their voices uh, coming through the headphones. And I talked about how important it is to monitor your own voice 
when you're recording. You have to be able to hear your own voice to know, am I off mic or am I off mic in a way that my audience won't be able? Oh, right. I was off mic there. Sorry. You need to listen to know that. If you don't hear your own voice, you won't know that you were off mic until you're in editing. And then you're editing it and you're going to, what, boost the volume for that? No, come on. You're better than that. You guys are better than that. Monitor and hear your own voice. People don't often like the sound of their own voice because they're used to hearing it through the bone and muscle tissue of their own head. You know, the way that you sound to yourself is completely different from the way you sound to the entire rest of the world. And a lot of the time when you hear yourself on uh, on a recording, you think, I don't sound like that. That's not how I sound. And, you know, it's funny, even after recording uh, hours a day, every day for years now, sometimes I'll hear myself on a uh, on a podcast, you know, like I might have uh, I might have been listening to something in my car. And I don't know about your phone, but whenever uh, I have a, a 5S and, you know, it syncs up with the car with Bluetooth, I don't know how iOS figures out which app is supposed to be playing and playing what. But it's always something different. Sometimes it's Spotify. Sometimes it's the podcast app. Who knows what uh, makes it think it should be playing when you start the car up. But sometimes it'll just start up and it'll be in the middle of the podcast that I was listening to. And I'll listen to it and I'll be oh, right, that's me. That's what I sound like to other people. It's weird and it does take some getting used to. Uh, but you don't have to love the sound of your own voice uh, to know that you can do a great show and great content. And some of my favorite broadcasters are not people with amazing voices. But again, your, your voice will improve. Your, uh, your technique will improve all with time. And again, not relying on editing as a crutch, but knowing that this is a one-shot deal, think of it that way, that will help you improve your voice quality. It will help you improve your delivery. Uh, listening for those bad habits and you just heard me say, ah, it happens. Uh, don't worry about it. it. It will happen and you'll get better over time. You have to practice it, though. Think of it as a craft. You're not going to be able to sit down and, uh, and, and, you know, go fly fishing and catch 50 fish on your first day. You might not even be able to get the lure working on the first day. You know, it takes practice. Everything takes practice. But eventually you'll catch some fish. Another question that a lot of different people ask me is uh, field recording. What if I'm out and about and I want to interview someone and I want to record it? What is the best thing for me to get to do that? Well, in the past, I've been recommending the Zoom H4n. This is a really cool portable recorder. It's a four-track recorder. It has built-in microphones. It records onto a flash card, and it's completely amazing. It has uh, two mic or line inputs with an XLR-TRS combo connector. Uh, it runs on two AA batteries, I think, and it, 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 it'll plug in to, uh, to your computer, and you can use it. You can pull the data off of it with a little USB cable. It'll also, when it's plugged in with USB, it'll act like a microphone that you can record right into your computer with. You can use that as your microphone. It's really, really great. Well, the Zoom H5 is even better. And uh, a bunch of people, when I, they saw that I was recommending H4, they're like, no, 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 go to the H5. I have not used the H5 a lot myself. I've seen it. I don't have direct hands-on experience with it, but... From everything that I've heard and everybody that I've talked to about it, they say it's everything the H4N was, uh, but, but just way better. Uh, and looking at the price, I see it's two, 270 bucks on Amazon. It's not cheap. Don't, don't be you know, confused to think that it's cheap. Uh, but this is something that's amazing. You can take this thing. You can go and interview somebody in the middle of a loud conference hall 
and you and their audio will be picked up very, very, very well. It's got these great directional mics on it. Uh, it'll isolate the sound really well. You can step that up, though, because, like I mentioned, it has these XLR TRS cables uh, to con- uh, connectors at the bottom of it. What that means is you can plug a microphone into it. It will work as a microphone preamp for it, and you can have one or two microphones connected, and you can actually record four tracks at once because this thing has the microphone I told you at the top. It's actually got two microphones at the top, and then you can plug in two microphones at the bottom and record four tracks at once if you really wanted to go crazy. You could do that. But this is nice because you can plug in a mic, like, for example, a Shure SM58. Uh, when, when most people think of a microphone, they imagine someone standing up on stage you know, talking into uh, talking into a, a microphone, like a generic mic. Well, that is typically the Shure SM58. This microphone has been around forever. Uh, this is the microphone that's in front of the President of the United States when, uh, when he gives his presidential address. They've usually got two of them. It's 100 bucks, And this is just the most straightforward mic. It's also a dynamic mic. It's got a cardioid pattern. And, uh, and basically, you, you plug this thing in with an XLR cable into any kind of preamp, and, and it just works. Uh, this will work very well when plugged into one of these H4 or H5s. Uh, and you can hold that thing, and you can talk into it. And then when it's a turn to talk to the person you're interviewing, you point the mic at their face, or you hand it to them, and they hold it. And you can have two of these things plugged in at once. And we've done it ourselves, and it's, it's great. Uh, so I, I recommend uh, something like that. If you want to uh, to go out there and uh, and record something in the field, and again, this could be a good stay at home mic for you too. I think it would be very valuable to look into that. Oh, here's another question from Hattie Cook, who I think works here. She asks on Twitter, "Can you talk about the importance of show artwork for a podcast?" Uh, great question. Yeah, uh, it's very, very, very important. You know. Before the days of digital downloads, we used to go and buy cassette tapes and CDs. And before cassette tapes and CDs, we had these things called records. And these are these, by today's standards, giant, giant pieces of plastic that came in these equally giant sleeves. And these covers would have beautiful artwork on them. And they'd have these amazing liner notes on the back and information about the band and the song and pictures and lyrics and all kinds of amazing stuff. And buying an album, buying a record was like a treat. It was like a treasure. You know, you'd, you'd have this album for the music and vinyl uh, inside, but the outside of it had amazing artwork. This, if you think about it, the, uh, the show artwork is the only visual thing. It's the only visual connection that you're going to have with your listeners. They're going to see it when they're playing it on their on their iPhones or their Android devices because it usually, uh, when it's playing, it takes over the whole screen and you can see that artwork there. That artwork is your one chance to send a message to your listener about your show. It's your one chance to, you know, a lot of podcasts don't even have much of a website. You could argue that maybe they don't need them as much as they used to. That is the only visual connection you have. And listeners are going to see that on iTunes and it's going to make them want to click. They're going to see it in their podcast app. It's going to make them want to tap. What is that show? The artwork looks good. I want to see what that is. It's your, it's your only chance to advertise to them or to market to them. In a, in, I mean that in a positive way. It's the only chance to put a cool image in front of them. That's it. You get that one thing. Now, if you have a few shows and you're doing a network, you, we put the little 5 by 5 badge at the bottom. 
And we put that there so that people will be able to assume, oh, right, that's a 5 by 5 show. I liked that other show on 5 by 5 Maybe I'll like this one. So that's something that, uh, that it's your one shot to conjure an image, to create a feeling, to create an atmosphere. And it really does matter. It really does matter. And we've talked to the folks over at iTunes, and they have told us many, many times we, you know, that, that they know, and I know that Apple is doing a lot of testing on this, they know that shows with good artwork do better than shows that don't have good artwork. Because if you're somebody who's looking for a show to listen to and you're scrolling through, through iTunes or you're scrolling through your podcast app, what are you doing? You're looking at covers. Which one is going to draw your attention? I know you're going to be tempted to do white text on a black background because that's what everybody starts out doing. And we've got a couple shows on 5x5 five five that are like that too. Those are never anywhere near as eye-catching uh, as, as something that actually has – oh, but you're not an artist. You're not a designer. You know what? Eh, I know. Neither am I. You're going to have to hire someone to do it. And yes, it's perfectly fine to start out with, uh, with artwork you do yourself. And then if and when your show is making some money or gets bigger and you want to invest in it, invest in it. Wait, that's okay. But just know that it helps to have that impact initially. Do, having good artwork does matter. And I believe, that, again, you're going to have to look into the rights uh, for, for, the, for uh, the stock art that you buy. But you go and buy stock art. Make sure that you're using it within the terms of your licensing agreement. But go and buy some stock art. Buy a beautiful image. Get a picture. If it's you and a friend, get a picture of you and your friend. Laugh and have a good time. Take a picture of that and put the name of the show across the top of it. Do something that lets people make that kind of uh, human or topic connection with you. Uh, it's, it's very important. Uh, gosh, there's so many other questions that I really wish that I would get to. Uh, but one question that I have been asked over and over and over again, which is a fairly technical question, is help me understand compression, dynamics compression, as it relates to a podcast. How do I use compression? I know there's a difference. I can tell uh, with shows that have it and, and ones that don't. But how do I do it? Do I just get level later and, and run it on the audio? Or do I take it to the next level? And, you know, compression is one of those things that this is, this is the space for audio engineers. And as much as I dive into the audio engineering space, I'm not an audio engineer. Uh, but fortunately, I know somebody who is. Um, my, my longtime friend, Jim Metzendorf, Jim was the first person that I ever hired uh, to work with me on 5 by 5 I was super busy. I was recording, gosh, in some cases, three time, three shows a day, five times a week. And I'll tell you what, that takes a lot out of you. And then knowing you've got to go back and edit and bounce those shows and publish them, I just needed help. And uh, Jim was a listener and he was a fan. And he had already given me a little bit of advice on ways I could make my shows sound better. So I think this was probably back in 2010. I said, Jim, uh, would you be interested in editing some of these shows, like I could pay you money to do it. And he said, I would love to do that. And he taught me so much about how to uh, edit and also how to improve the quality uh, of the audio of shows. And, uh, and he's been so helpful all along the way that I thought, who better to ask for uh, help explaining compression and how to use compression effectively for your podcast than Jim himself. So uh, here he is, Jim. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me. You're here because you're going to take us to school about compression. And the reason that, you know, I wanted to have you here 
is because we get all these questions about things like compression. Everybody knows that they're supposed to be using compression uh, for their for their podcast, but they don't really know what that means, and they don't know the the, the nitty gritty of compression. And I almost fall into that camp a bit too, in that I know exactly what compression does. I know kind of how to fine tune it, but only based on just sitting there and and messing around with it until it sounds good, uh, doing that for years and figuring it out, you actually understand a little bit more. And I thought, you know what? This show is about uh, teaching people stuff. You taught me about it. Maybe you can teach the listeners a little bit about it. What What is compression and like, why are we using it and how do we use it? Sure thing. Well, I, I think the, the first thing to, to start with is, is we want to, we want to properly define compression in this context. So what, what we're specifically referring to now for the moment uh, is more accurate, accurately described as dynamics processing. All right. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think thing number one here is what we're doing with, with audio compression or dynamics processing is we're controlling the, the dynamic range of an audio signal. Okay. And let me, let me elaborate on that just a, just a little bit. What, what happens is if you have an audio signal that does not have any compression applied to it, and you'll, sometimes you'll have very quiet signals, and then sometimes you'll have very loud signals. And what, what can happen is, especially if you're listening to a podcast in the car or on the train or or somewhere where there might be some background noise. The, the problem is, is those soft things can be hard to hear. So you crank up the, uh, the volume on your phone, but then all of a sudden we get excited and we speak more loudly, and then it's way too loud. You know, it's going to hurt your ears. So what we do is we use compression. We use dynamics processing to even out the difference between the quietest passages and the loudest passages. So we're actually decreasing the dynamic range, if, if that makes sense. Totally. Okay, cool. And there's, you know, compression is, is, is really kind of a mysterious thing for a, for a lot of people, especially podcasters who maybe don't have an audio background. So I'm really glad to hear that, that everybody's asking, asking about it. Oh yeah. We got tons and, of questions uh, on it. So it's, yeah. it's clear. And it's what also makes me happy is that people know, or they at least get a sense that they'll hear something. They'll hear a show like one of these. Uh, and we, we always use compression, not a lot, uh, but they'll hear one and they'll say, yeah, it seems like the, 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 the people's voices are consistent. Everybody sounds like they're talking at the same level, even when they're talking more quietly. It, it doesn't, it's not harder to hear. How is that? And they'll listen to something that, that maybe they've been working on and they won't understand why are these things at different levels, right? Like, uh, how do I, how do I fix that? And they'll hear from someone, oh yeah, you use compression. And they'll say, wait a minute, what, right. how do I do that? Is it levelator? You know, what, do, so what is, yeah. Once, once you get the idea of, okay, compression is going to bring all of these different uh, levels kind of balanced and, and into synchronicity with one another, how do they go about doing it? What, how do I apply compression to an audio track or to a podcast? Right, right. Well, there's, there's a variety of different components 
to what what uh, constitutes a a compressor. And I'm just going to throw out a couple couple words here real fast that that uh, most of you might have heard. And then, uh, then we'll talk about each one of them in a, in a little bit more detail. And these are, these are roughly in uh, in order of importance. Uh, actually, pretty good in, in order of importance, probably. Uh, the first thing is is ratio, and I'll just go through these, and then and then we'll we'll go back to the top. Ratio, threshold, makeup gain, attack, release, and knee. And let's let's jump back. Did you up just and, make those up? Yeah, I just made it. <laughs> well, it's also important <laughs> to note that depending, and this is what makes it even more complicated, um, you won't always, if, especially if you're if you're using hardware, and I, I would love for you to address the differences between hardware compression and software compression in post, uh, but you won't always see those same terms on every compressor that you use either. That's exactly right. <laughs> and it just That's makes it more exact- complicated. Yeah, it, it can really get confusing out there because... Um, you know, not all hardware compressors have all of those settings spelled out in them. And for that matter, not all software might have those same settings. But if you if you have an idea of what these different things are, then you can kind of ex- extrapolate from there how it applies to your particular uh, your your particular situation, whether it be hardware or software. Now, let's let's start with ratio. And and the ratio is is essentially is essentially this Um, that determines how much the signal is going to be compressed or turned down. So let's let's talk about that a little bit more. And, you know, basically what we're doing when we compress an audio signal is we're actually turning down the loudest portions so that they're more even with the softer ones. And then we bring everything up to, to be more level. And the ratio determines how much those, uh, those louder signals are being reduced. Right. And I'm just going to, I'm going to throw a, a couple couple little bits of math here for you um so if you have a compressor that has a two to one ratio so you're going to see ratios listed as like two to one three to one four to one six to one you know all the way to you know ten to one that sort of thing a two to one ratio means that if the signal is two decibels above the threshold level which we'll talk about next then the output increases only one dB. Okay? So for every two decibels above the threshold, the output increases by only one. Now, and and by extension with that same two-to-one ratio, if a signal, if an input signal is four dB above the threshold, then the ratio is going to be uh, uh, I'm sorry, the gain will be turned down so the output only rises 2 dB. Now, if we have a 4 to 1 ratio, then what that would mean is that same 4 dB above the threshold means that the output only increases by 1 dB. 
Okay. So essentially, the higher the ratio, the more active that compression is going to be, the more reduction there will be. So in other words, a higher setting of a ratio is is going to work better in a situation where you might have something that's suddenly quite loud. It's going to work even harder to keep it less loud. It's going to that's- increase it even less. So a two to one... I can get louder on a two to one than I could on a four to one, essentially, if I was shouting it into the microphone. That's correct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and let, let's talk about that that threshold now. And the threshold is is the level at which a compressor begins to function. OK, and and that's also uh, something that's expressed in decibels. So a common threshold setting for a compressor might be minus 10 dB or minus 15 or minus 20 or, or, or somewhere, you know, anywhere between there. And let's just use minus 10 as, as the example. If my threshold for the compressor is minus 10 dB, then what that means is that only signals that are hotter or higher then minus 10 dB are affected. So that's that's the point at which my compression kicks in. So if my if my threshold is set to 10 dB and my current signal is minus 15, that signal is not being affected. Not it's at all. not being reduced. Right. It's just passing right on through. But as soon as I get to 10 dB or louder than minus 10 dB, that's when the compressor starts working. So what you might have in the situation why that's important is, you're saying you don't need or even want to compress a signal unless you need to compress that signal, unless it falls outside of a threshold that you're setting. In other words, if there's two people talking and they're, they're just, they're having a good conversation, the levels are where you want them to be, they're not getting too loud, they're not being too quiet, nothing's going to happen. But if they then unexpectedly get too loud or too quiet, which is very, very typical with people who don't spend their lifetime and behind a microphone like I do, right? Uh, people who are coming in uh, or just lots of the time you get excited or you, you are saying something for effect. Your, your voice, the, the human voice has this huge dynamic range to it when you really think about it, uh, going from louder to quieter, right? So the compressor is going to kick in when it, whenever it needs to, but there's, in addition to threshold and then ratio, you've also got uh, how fast it starts and stops, right? That's correct. Yeah. And, and, and with the threshold, the, the, how fast it starts and ta- and stops uh, has to do with uh, the, the attack time and the release time of the compressor. And so the attack time determines how quickly does that compression take hold? And, and, and these are, are typically measured in milliseconds. And you could have an attack time of, let's say, 20 milliseconds. And what that means is that 20 milliseconds will pass in a, in a signal above the threshold before the compression starts to take effect. So it will take... 20 milliseconds 
And again, let's let's kind of build build the scenario here. Uh, let's say our threshold is, is again minus ten, and our attack is is twenty milliseconds. It will take twenty milliseconds before any signal at ten, minus ten dB or above will will start to be compressed, and and those attack times are are variable because they're going to have an influence on the 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 tone color or character of the compressor and it also depends especially in musical situations um how quickly you want that compressor to take effect if you're if you're recording drums or percussion instruments just as an example you probably want those attack times to be very short because those have fast sharp what we call transients whereas spoken word speech is a little bit um we want it to be a little bit smoother than that. So we might have uh, a slightly longer attack time. You know, if we if we shorten the attack time too much, then things can potentially start to sound a little bit jittery or choppy. Right. And then uh, the the flip side of that is the release time. And the release determines how long that compression effect lasts after the signal returns below the threshold. Okay. So let's use uh, minus 10 dB again as, as our threshold. And then we'll say, we'll say 150 milliseconds for the release time. And so what that's telling us is that once the signal is back down below minus 10 dB, the compressor will continue working and release over the course of 150 milliseconds. Okay? So what that kind of gives us uh, gives us in that situation is it controls uh, the decay time, essentially, of the compressor. And, and if, if you have a... a uh, a software or hardware compressor that has these settings in it. What you can do is act, you can experiment with these, and and I always recommend that people um, try extreme settings so that they it, they help it helps them understand uh, the effect that these have. So with a very very long release time, then the signal continues to be compressed longer after it goes back down below the threshold. And so you have to watch out for that because if release times are too long and you have um, signals that are kind of on the noisy side, then that's where you can get a, a phenomenon that's called breathing in a compressor. And the effect of the compression can become more audible if the release time is too, is too long. Now, this makes sense, but where does the knee come into play? Okay, the knee. Now, what the knee does is that determines how gradually the compressor kicks in as it approaches that threshold. So you'll typically, you'll typically see uh, terms like hard knee or soft, uh, soft knee. And a hard knee 
means that the full compression ratio is applied to any signal uh, above the threshold level. So if I have, uh, let's say, a, a 6 to 1 compression ratio with a hard knee, then bam, as soon as I hit that threshold, whatever it happens to be, that, that full ratio is kicking right in immediately. Whereas with a soft knee, it's a more mild ratio applied as the signal approaches the threshold and then beyond the threshold. And for, for our purposes in, in podcasting, what that oftentimes will mean for us is a little bit more natural sound. And really what it comes down to with, with compression is that's what, that's what we want. We don't really want to, if we can hear obvious effects of compression. Right. It's failed. Yeah. yeah. Then you've, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. It's okay. It's okay. If you, if you have a, if you have a pretty finely tuned ear, you're going to, you're going to notice good compression, but you're, and that's fine. You're going to notice good compression if you, if you know what to listen for, but Everybody notices bad compression. Right, right. And we don't want that. No. Now there's there's one other one other thing that we that we should talk about with with the compression settings. And uh and that's makeup gain. Okay? Because remember, this is all about up to this point, we're all about reducing the level of the hot signals mm. of the of the louder sounds, right? Mm-hmm. So what we need to do now is with makeup gain. We have to boost, we want to boost everything up so that everything sounds louder so that, you know, when you're, t- when you're taking that train to work and listening to uh, back to work or, or, you know, whatever show, right? then you're going to hear the, you know, the relatively speaking, softer and louder things, nice and full and loud and clear. Okay, so... This, what we've been mainly talking about now, are settings that you would use in your audio editing application, like Logic or Pro Tools or something like that, right? Yeah. There's also hardware compression. So, for example, I've, I've talked about it here before. We've got, uh, we've got a, a, a lot of hardware here in, in our little studio, uh, mainly in the form of the thing that sits between the microphone and, uh, and the device that connects uh, those microphones to the computer uh, is a, is a preamp essentially, and most people with uh, with an XLR mic are going to be plugging into some kind of preamp. In many cases, the preamp is the same device that actually plugs into their computer. So if they're using what we you know, I've heard them called audio interfaces. I've people even call them audio cards, even though they're not cards anymore. <laughs> uh, but the, the got to watch out for those IRQ conflicts. Exactly, folks. <laughs> boy. But we have, so we have an audio input device, which is a box and you plug your microphone XLR cable into the box and that converts it usually into USB and that plugs into your computer and you record that way. As you step up, you can get some that have Firewire and if you get very fancy, you'll get some that have uh, Thunderbolt and the advantage of the, uh, the Firewire and the Thunderbolt ones that they let you record usually multi-track, whereas the USB, maybe you'll get stereo. Um, but for the, the, you know, for those who, get a little bit more into it, that box is also doing the preamp. In other words, it's, it's a, picking up that signal from the microphone and converting it right. But 
uh, in in more professional or more expensive studios, you will have a separate preamp that that is in in that chain before you actually get to the audio interface that's taking it to the computer. You, in other words, if you have a mixer, you might even have a preamp. Yes, most mixers have preamps built in, but you might have a preamp before that. That's how we do it here. That's how most radio stations do it. Um, pretty much all recording studios are going to do it that way. Why? Because the preamps uh, that are independent, standalone things, they have enough gain in them to drive pretty much any kind of microphone, no matter how much gain that microphone is going to want. And they'll allow you to to customize the sound. These DBXs that we have, they sell for about 150 bucks on Amazon. I'll put them in the show notes. It's a DBX-286S, and it is a it's designed to be rack-mounted, although you could put rubber feet on it and sit it on your desk. It's, it's a bit big. Uh, but it has built-in compression, among other things. Um, it does not have most of the settings that you have described. Uh, there's only two knobs for the compressor. Right. Drive... And uh, what's the other one? Intensity. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Drive and intensity. Two yeah. knobs for the compressor. Yep. Yep. Um, now, you have to sit down and read the DBX manual to understand what those mean. But at the end of the day, and this is, I think, good advice for everybody, to just start turning them and seeing what they do to the sound. Uh, if you have a hardware device or you're using a plug-in for your application that doesn't have all of these same things that, that Jim has described, uh, you're going to have to play around. But Jim, I was wondering as, as kind of a last bit of advice, could you give us as podcasters who are wanting to start using compression, kind of a baseline, are there settings we could start with and, and increase or decrease from there to hear how it sounds just, uh, as kind of like a, a baseline starting point? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, uh, before before I mention that, just uh, one one last little thought is to to be clear, the the hardware compressors all work on the exact same principles that that I was talking about. So uh, all of those those that terminology and the the way it functions applies equally to hardware and software compression. Is it better but, to use hardware or software, or does it not matter? Well, there there can be a significant difference. Now, like you said, some hardware compressors won't have all the knobs. So that's where you do kind of want to sit down with the manual and understand what the knobs are doing. And just turn the knobs and sit there and listen. Uh, to, to paraphrase Duke Ellington, if it sounds good, it is good. <laughs> uh, now, do, do you want to... Uh, before I give you kind of like some starting point settings, do you want to talk about the the advantage of of hardware versus? Yeah, I think we have software? to. If we'll yeah, get I, email if we don't. Yeah, yeah, we might we <laughs> might as well since uh, we're we're already down uh, pretty deep into the uh, into the rabbit hole. So here's here's the number. Well, there's a couple advantages to hardware compression. Number one is it saves you on post production processing time. Okay. So if I capture the signal with, uh, with compression already in place, then that's going to save me time in the editing process, fiddling around, trying to find the setting I want. Okay? Now, depending on your workflow, that might not be that big of a deal. Okay? Uh, another advantage is that 
by using, and perhaps the most significant advantage really, is an advantage of using hardware compression is that helps us maximize our signal-to-noise ratio as we're recording. And so what this really does is it helps us get the hottest overall signal that we can so that we can keep the noise floor and the noise in our recordings to a minimum. Okay? Because think of it, think of it this way. If I'm using compression as I record, then my quieter passages are not going to be as quiet as they otherwise would be. So I'm keeping my signal overall nice and above that, that noise floor. Now, there is one big disadvantage, if you want to look at it that way, one big disadvantage of recording with a hardware compressor is once it's printed a tape, you can't change it. Right. So you, you better like the sound you're getting because you're going to be kind of stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. Now, un- unlike unlike whereas if you're editing it in Logic in one of your favorite editors, you can put the compression on there and say, oh, you know what? I don't like that. In the final mix, that doesn't that doesn't sound very good. I want to change it. You can. You can change it because you have that original unadulterated, uncompressed track. Uh, whereas what we've got here coming out of the DBX is that's that's what we got. Um, but wouldn't you say, wouldn't you say generally speaking though, uh, if, if you take the time and you do it right and you compress, uh, correctly in the hardware that what you're going to wind up with is pretty typically going to be really good and and you don't have to worry about it so much, especially not for like a spoken word podcast. And, and I, I want to have you back to talk about, um, to talk more about things like noise gates and, and you know, how, how to output and uh, convert a file and things like that. Uh, so we'll have you back in, down the road to do that. But would, would you recommend people starting out with just using the Dynamics compression in, in their software just as they go before they invest in the hardware? I, I think that makes sense because that's going to help you learn how to use it. It's going to help you learn how to use the tool and understand what it does in terms of having an effect on on the sound. And once you've kind of learned that, then you can you can go out and start using hardware. Because hardware really is is the the ideal way to go. Because we do want to try to control that that recording level, that signal level as best as we can during the capture process because one of the huge things it does also that I that I didn't mention is that it helps us control and prevent clipping which clipping I'm I'm sure you've probably clipping is bad clipping is bad clip bad <laughs> number one rule in 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 digital audio clipping is bad do not clip and hardware compressors are going to help us not do that all right give us give us that baseline all right baseline settings um for for a pretty nice natural sound that's uh not going to be too aggressive uh but also give you a, a nice a nice positive effect why don't you start out with maybe a ratio of about 3 to 1 okay a threshold of let's go back to that minus 10 db minus 15 db 
you know, depending if you're if your recordings are already pretty, pretty hot, then minus 10. If they're a little on the soft side, then you might want to take it down um, a little bit further. Makeup gain. Um, really, that is going to kind of depend on how hot the signal is to begin with. Um, maybe boost that about four, five, six dB. Um, that that one you're really going to want to salt to taste as far as the makeup gain because we want it to be nice and full sounding. Uh, attack times, um, you can go, let's say, uh, ten milliseconds for the attack. Maybe uh, 190 milliseconds for the release is is something that I typically use a lot. And uh, and for spoken word, I like a soft knee. Very good. Well, we'll, uh, we'll transcribe that and put it into the show notes. And uh, Jim, I appreciate you stopping by. And where can uh, where can the listeners go if they want to follow you on Twitter or something like that? Are yeah, you, people, can, you can use Twitter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, people can check me out on Twitter at J Metzendorf. That's the letter J. M-E-T-Z-E-N-D-O-R-F. And uh, I've got a little site set up that uh, people can check out uh, as well, audiopodcastguide.com. Go check it out. The guy knows what he's talking about. Thanks so much uh, for being here, Jim. I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, man. My pleasure. Well, that'll about do it for this episode of Podcast Method. I just want to say thanks, obviously, to Jim for being here. Uh, but thanks so much to all of you who have listened and who have taken the time to uh, hit me up on Twitter and ask these great questions. Please keep them coming uh, at Dan Benjamin on Twitter, podcast method hashtag. And uh, for everybody who's taken time to rate the show on iTunes, and if you're listening and you like the show, please just go and you know give it a few stars on iTunes. It makes a huge, huge, huge difference. And uh, I'll ask you for one more big favor. If you like the show, if you like the things that we do on 5x5, uh, we can use your help. You can support us and the things that we're doing. Go to patreon.com slash 5x5, patreon.com slash 5x5, and donate. Donate whatever you think uh, is fair. Uh, every little bit helps. It's how I'm able to do this show and, and so many of the other shows there. We're working on reaching an, a new milestone. So anything you can do to help us out, we sure do appreciate it. Uh, thanks again, and we'll be back with another episode of Podcast Method for you next week.